The July sun rose over the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The beams of light illuminated more than half a million acres of trees, underbrush, and animals. The mountainous park that straddled the border between Tennessee and North Carolina was teeming with life. Dawn had barely broken, and the forest was already inundated with more than a thousand people. They weren't the usual scores of tourists and campers who visited on a daily basis. No, in the summer of 1969, these people were on a mission to find a missing child, Dennis Lloyd Martin. They combed the wilderness and slowly pushed their way through the brush. The hot summer sun beat down on them as they looked for any sign of the lost boy. They'd been searching for days, and they were growing desperate. Suddenly, a cry rose out. The searchers turned their heads. Was that him? Was their search finally done? They hurried through the brush to catch up to a lone member of their party who stood looking at the ground. He'd found the first piece of evidence in weeks, a series of footprints clearly visible in the underbrush, the same size as the missing boys. Reinvigorated, the searchers followed the trail to the banks of a nearby stream where it stopped. The dead end was the perfect metaphor for a hunt that would stymie investigators and the Park Service for decades. No matter what clues they uncovered or tips they heard, the search team would never find poor young Dennis. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're exploring the disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin, a six-year-old who went missing on a camping trip in 1969. He was only out of his parents' eyesight for a few minutes before they noticed he was gone. But that was long enough to vanish without a trace. The abrupt and inexplicable disappearance has led some to suspect nefarious forces were at play. On June 14, 1969, the Martin family from Knoxville, Tennessee, suffered every parent's worst fear, losing a child. During a camping trip, their son Dennis left his father's sight ever so briefly. But in a matter of minutes, he was gone. An extensive search was swiftly launched. More than a thousand park rangers, boy scouts, soldiers, emergency service workers, and even volunteers combed the area for months. In spite of all their efforts, no trace of Dennis was ever found. 
Some believe Dennis was kidnapped by a predator lurking in the woods. Others thought that more mysterious forces were at work. Some have claimed Dennis might have been the victim of a Bigfoot attack. Even more troubling, some have suspected the government made Dennis disappear, then covered it up. But nobody was debating conspiracy theories on Father's Day weekend, 1969. Just like most families, the Martins had a holiday tradition. The men always went on a long hike in the Smoky Mountain National Park. Their favored 13.3-mile loop took the whole weekend, trekking through creeks, fields, and even part of the Appalachian Trail. It was the first year six-year-old Dennis would be coming on the trip. He joined his dad, Bill, his grandfather, Clyde, and his nine-year-old brother, Doug. According to his family, Dennis was quiet, but he was still very energetic. He took his enthusiasm with him wherever he went, including the hike's starting point, Cades Cove. And even though he was young, he was able to keep up with the ambitious pace. On the first day, they conquered an impressive six miles. That night, they camped at a landmark known as the Russell Field Shelter. It was a simple stone hut, but it provided a roof and protection from the elements. The family woke up the next day and got back on the trail. The ever-enthusiastic Dennis strode at the front of the group, setting the pace for the rest of his family. The four Martins had to cover 2.7 miles to reach their next stop, Spence Field. This was a grassy clearing on the border between Tennessee and North Carolina. Along the way, the Martins ran into another family walking along the same route. Coincidentally, their last name was also Martin. Carter Martin and his two sons were from Alabama. It seemed serendipitous. Carter's boys were about the same age as Dennis's brother, Doug. The kids all got along as they continued hiking. Around four o'clock in the afternoon, the adults called a halt and they all sat down to rest near Spence Field. But Doug and Dennis continued to play with the two other boys. They ran off and, out of earshot from the adults, hatched a scheme. The mischievous kids wanted to play a little prank when the hike resumed. They'd split up, hide in the woods, and jump out, surprising their parents. Doug and the two older boys would go off in one direction, and Dennis would head the other way. It would be a fun way to keep their parents on their toes. From their seats at the other end of the field, the adults could immediately tell what their kids were planning. After all, they knew their sense of humor. But in the spirit of good-natured fun, they let the boys go ahead with their plan. At 4.30 p.m., the group got up to leave and the kids ran off, setting their prank into motion. As the adults started down the trail, the first group of boys only hid for a few moments. In no time at all, they leaped out of the woods shouting, Boo! The grown-ups pretended to be surprised, laughing at their wily children. However, it wasn't long before they realized something was wrong. Dennis was nowhere to be seen. His father, Bill, and grandfather, Clyde, didn't panic. The boy had only been out of sight for about three minutes. He couldn't have gone far. He was also wearing a bright red T-shirt, so he'd be easy to spot amongst the foliage. Unconcerned, they began calling his name. 
The ever-present wind at Spence Field carried their unanswered shouts far and wide, but didn't offer a response. As the minutes passed, they grew more worried. The adults decided to split up and search the surrounding area. Bill hurried along the path, calling his son's name to no avail. A mile down the trail, Bill decided Dennis couldn't possibly have made it this far. After all, Bill was a fit adult, spurred by fear and adrenaline. Dennis was only six. He couldn't have gone a full mile in the half hour they'd been searching. Empty-handed, Bill retraced his steps back to the others. When they reunited, the group told him that they hadn't found Dennis either. Bill's breath quickened. He turned around and went west toward Russell Field Shelter, where they'd last camped. Maybe Dennis had gotten lost and hiked in the wrong direction. Bill scoured the two-and-a-half-mile trail. When the search proved fruitless, the determined father returned to Spence Field to keep looking. Meanwhile, Clyde Martin searched the entire seven-mile path back to Cade's Cove, where the family had set out the day before. There was absolutely no sign of Dennis. When Clyde reached the trailhead, he notified the park rangers of his grandson's disappearance. With the rangers' help, the family canvassed the area surrounding the trail. On foot and in jeeps, they searched every possible place they thought he could be. Increasingly distraught, they pulled aside every hiker and fisherman they encountered, asking if they'd come across Dennis. No one had seen the missing boy. By that time, Dennis had been gone for nearly four hours, and it was starting to get dark. Bill told the rangers that Dennis was quiet, so he wouldn't necessarily cry out for help. However, he was friendly and would respond if strangers called his name. The rangers and family members continued searching, but as night fell, a new obstacle appeared. A storm. Torrential rain and bolts of lightning raged that night, almost as if specifically cued to interrupt the search. The ground became muddy and difficult to traverse. Nearby streams overflowed. The already difficult task of finding a child in the woods was now seemingly impossible. Nevertheless, the group continued their hunt throughout the night, They wouldn't let darkness, floods, screaming rain, and booming thunder stand in their way. As the rain continued to pour, Bill grew more desperate. His boy was out here somewhere. He was cold, hungry, and probably lost or injured. They were all doing the best they could, but the efforts felt utterly hopeless. And every hour that passed made it less likely they'd find Dennis alive. When we return, the hunt for Dennis Lloyd Martin grows. And now, back to the story. Sometimes, a harmless prank turns tragic. That's what happened on June 14, 1969, when six-year-old Dennis Lloyd Martin disappeared. He'd intended to surprise his family by jumping out of the woods with the other kids on a Father's Day camping trip but he never popped out from the trees. The Martin family quickly began to search, combing through the Grand Smoky Mountains National Park on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. In spite of terrible weather conditions, 
the National Park Service swiftly organized a massive search and rescue operation. By the next morning, Chief Ranger Lee Snedden had a plan. He contacted several groups, including the park staff and several volunteer organizations. They were all instructed to be on site by 5 a.m. As dawn broke on Sunday, June 15, 1969, the organized search for Dennis Lloyd Martin was about to begin. But the team was unsure of where to start. About two and a half inches of rain had fallen the night before. Any tracks Dennis may have left had certainly been washed away. Snedden decided that they should begin with the areas known as drainages, basically natural gutters where stormwater washed away. He wanted to see if the rain had swept Dennis away. While a few rescue workers checked the drainages, the rest of the search party canvassed the area. They had more volunteers and better equipment than the Martin family did, so they were optimistic they'd find Dennis soon. Snedden had helicopters fly equipment to Spence Field, which became their base camp. Rangers examined the various trails in the area. Of the nearby paths, only one hadn't been investigated the previous day, so a ranger was rapidly dispatched to search it. In the midst of all the commotion, Dennis's mother, Violet Martin, joined the hunt for her son, her heart was in her mouth as she saw the dozens of people all pulling together to rescue her boy. It was encouraging to see how many people cared, but the clock was ticking, and she feared they were running out of time. She wasn't alone in her worries. As the rangers called for more volunteers, local news stations caught wind of the story. They sent out bulletins to amplify the simple, terrifying message. A six-year-old boy was missing. Send help. The call was widely received. The assistance they'd requested soon arrived in droves. Everyone from local firefighters to Boy Scouts showed up, all determined to put the Martins' nightmare to an end. The rescue team flew helicopters overhead, scouring the area from an aerial perspective. Jeeps crisscrossed mountain trails and campgrounds. Volunteers tramped through the woods on foot. The park rangers even contacted a United States Special Forces unit that was stationed in the area. The commanding officer, Colonel Howard Kinney, ordered 40 soldiers to join the hunt. Bill and Violet Martin took comfort in the ever-growing hunt for their little boy. The number of volunteers was ballooning wildly. Surely they'd find something soon. But by the end of the first day, they hadn't uncovered a shred of evidence. All the additional eyes and ears hadn't seemed to accomplish anything. The Martin's spark of hope began to turn into dread. Even with all of their resources at their disposal, their search team didn't find their first clue until the fourth day. On Tuesday, June 17th, a volunteer search party spotted a small set of footprints about the size a six-year-old would leave. The trail vanished into a stream. One of the prints was barefoot and the other left by a shoe. When he'd gone missing, Dennis had been wearing Oxfords. But the team couldn't tell if the print matched that of an Oxford or a more generic sneaker. 
The volunteers hastily reported their findings, hoping that the more seasoned professionals could take over. But their hopes, it turned out, were for nothing. The Green Berets, who were assisting with the search, said they'd already been through that area. They argued that the prints had likely been left by the Boy Scouts, who were accompanying the search parties. But none of the Boy Scouts were barefoot, and there was only one set of tracks while the scouts were traveling in groups. Some of the searchers thought they should keep looking near the footprints, but they couldn't find any other sign of Dennis. With this potential lead ruled a dead end, the search teams abandoned that clue and looked elsewhere. On June 20th, 1969, Dennis's seventh birthday passed with no sign of him. The rescuers were getting discouraged. That day, Snedden gave his team new instructions, procedures to follow if they found Dennis dead. Dennis had been gone too long, and there was no sign that he was still alive. No one could say what had happened to him, but the prevailing theory was that he'd gotten lost and was killed by wild animals. After all, the park was home to boars, bears, and other creatures that could make quick work of his small child. Moreover, it would explain how he disappeared so quickly. Predators are expert at stalking and striking in silence. If Dennis had stumbled upon a hungry bear or mountain lion, he wouldn't have stood a chance. In light of this possibility, the park rangers adjusted their tactics. Every piece of animal scat they found within the vicinity was scoured for human remains. But once again, there was no sign of Dennis. But not everyone had given up hope of finding him alive. Many so-called psychics called the National Park Service to offer tips. Several reported visions and dreams of finding Dennis. One of these mediums was Jean Dixon of Washington, D.C., who alleged she previously predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy. While no one was able to verify her claims, she still liked to weigh in on well-publicized mysteries. When she called the National Park Service, Dixon said that she'd had a vision, Dennis still breathing. The search party would find the lost boy by a waterfall. The searchers investigated the dubious lead in the hope it could lead to something. Unfortunately for the Martins, it didn't. Other psychics kept calling in or even showing up at the park, but they only provided marginal insight. For instance, one medium claimed that the searchers should stop looking at the ground and instead look in the trees. The rangers didn't find any of these tips helpful. But Bill and Violet Martin insisted they at least hear them out. Surely any lead was better than nothing at all. And since the parents were taking them seriously, the authorities did as well. Every lead was another spark of hope that kept the family optimistic. But none yielded any results. At least, not until the second week of the search. On June 24th, a young boy was spotted on a trail by some hikers. He was in a bright red t-shirt and green shorts, just like what Dennis had been wearing when he disappeared. The park service leaped into action. Maybe Dennis was alive and well after all. But after a short investigation, they determined that this was another young boy out on a hike with his own parents. As the disappointments and red herrings kept mounting, 
motivation waned. On June 21, 1,400 volunteers participated in the search. By June 26, that number had dwindled to 68. Three days later, on June 29, the formal search finally came to an end. While some volunteers chose to stick around, the rangers packed up their base at Spence Field, and the bulk of the search party was sent home. Dennis's family didn't give up hope, though. Under advice from the FBI, they posted a $5,000 reward for any information that would lead to their son's safe return. A small search persisted for months. Rangers continued to investigate every tip or potential clue. Maybe something had eluded the thousands of volunteers. But as the summer ended, so did any hope of finding the boy. With heavy hearts, the rangers finally closed the case in September 1969. The hunt for Dennis Lloyd Martin had involved more than 50 agencies and cost an estimated $290,000, worth roughly $2 million today. But although the search was over, the mystery endured. Since Dennis's disappearance, rumors and theories have cropped up, all trying to explain what happened to the boy. Some, like the Martins, insisted that Dennis had survived somehow. His parents found it too unthinkable that their child could die without them knowing. Instead, Bill and Violet began to argue that their son had been kidnapped. The FBI investigated. Throughout the summer of 1969, they made inquiries in the Great Smoky Mountains area. Then, in July, a man named Harold Key from Carthage, Tennessee, contacted the National Park Service with a major tip. He claimed that he and his family were camping in the park on the same day that Dennis went missing, and they saw something suspicious. As they set off for their trek, they noticed only a few other cars in the parking lot, including a white Chevrolet. Hopefully, this meant there wouldn't be too many people on the trail. Sure enough, Key and his family found the woods quiet and peaceful, at least at first. Then, they heard a blood-curdling scream from the trees. It sounded like a child. Key sprinted in the direction the cry had come from. Off in the distance, he barely caught a glimpse of a tall, unkempt man moving through the underbrush. The man looked like he was trying to hide. He ducked down low, hunching behind plants and bushes. But although Key didn't get a good look at the man, he could tell there was something slung over his shoulder. Something about the size of a small child. Key didn't confront the man. It seemed too risky. After all, he was with his family. But he waited for what felt like a safe amount of time, then walked over to where the man had been. He found a crude map on the ground, but no other sign of what he'd been up to. It was definitely an unnerving experience. But odd things happened in these woods all the time. Key shrugged the encounter off and tried to put it behind him. When they finally made it back from the hike, the white Chevy in the parking lot was gone. Key claimed he initially thought the figure was a moonshiner or someone smuggling illicit liquor. After all... The Martins hadn't reported their son missing yet, so he couldn't imagine what else the strange figure had been hiding. 
It was only later, when he heard the story of Dennis Martin, that Key began to suspect something more nefarious. The Rangers took this report seriously, but it didn't quite fit with the events as they understood them. The suspicious sighting had occurred six miles away from where the Martins lost their son. There were no trails connecting the two locations, so if someone had traveled those six miles, he would have had to do so cross-country. On top of that, Key couldn't remember exactly what time his family had encountered the suspicious figure. So the investigators couldn't establish a clear timeline or reconcile it with Dennis's possible movements. And worse still, the area where Harold Keyes spotted the mystery man had already been picked clean by search parties. Any clues that may have been left there were either already found or inadvertently destroyed. Nevertheless, the rangers couldn't rule out Keyes' testimony entirely, especially because the timeline was so fuzzy and impossible to disprove. They relayed his report to the FBI, but the Bureau didn't have enough evidence to conduct a full-scale investigation. With no information apart from a compelling story, the team deemed it an unrelated incident. Yet, this wouldn't be the last time the FBI received a tip related to a kidnapping. Nearly a year later, in July 1970, Chief Wells of the Greenville, Tennessee Police Department received an unexpected phone call. It was an anonymous tip from a woman who claimed she'd seen something related to Dennis Lloyd Martin. She'd seen a child poking his head out of the window of a car. The anonymous woman said this happened in the Martins' hometown of Knoxville, only 50 minutes north of the park and there was another kid in the car with him. The car was driven by a balding man who looked to be between 38 to 45 years of age. The vehicle had Tennessee license plates, but the caller couldn't remember the number. She didn't know the make or model of the car either, but she did mention that it was white. White, just like the Chevy that Key had seen. Unfortunately, the report gave the police practically nothing to work off of. The chief passed the information on to the National Park Service, but the tip didn't go any further. The kidnapping investigation never developed beyond a handful of questionable reports and speculation. But it does make some sense. A kidnapping could explain the lack of evidence that a six-year-old would otherwise leave had he been lost in the woods. But the biggest problem is the time frame. Dennis had only been out of sight for three to five minutes before the adults noticed he was gone. An abductor would need to have nearly superhuman precision to strike within such a tight window. After all, he didn't snatch Dennis from a crowded public place. The boy went missing from a remote trail far from civilization. This theory would require a kidnapper to just happen to be in precisely the right place at exactly the right time to grab Dennis and run. That possibility seems incredibly unlikely. But even if Dennis wasn't kidnapped, his disappearance was still highly suspicious. To this day, it's hard to explain how he slipped away from his family in a matter of minutes or how he avoided leaving a shred of evidence. That leads some to wonder if someone intentionally hid the truth about Dennis. Someone or something like a secret 
government program. Up next, we'll explore whether a clandestine military operation made Dennis Lloyd Martin disappear. Now, back to the story. Six-year-old Dennis Lloyd Martin vanished on June 14, 1969, in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Even after the most extensive hunt in the park's history, no trace of him was found. Over 50 years later, people still don't know what happened. Some think he was eaten by a bear. Others believe he could have been kidnapped. And still others think that there's something more conspiratorial at play. Dennis's disappearance became a sensation in 2012 when retired police inspector and Bigfoot truthist David Politis published his book, Missing 411. This work detailed the stories of people who'd seemingly vanished, including Dennis. Politis highlighted the peculiar fact that special forces were dispatched for the hunt. The official story is that the Green Berets were coincidentally training in the mountains at the time. After a request from the rangers, their colonel dispatched 40 men to aid in the search. But Politis argued there was no reason for the U.S. Army to become involved with a search for a civilian child, unless this was something bigger than a normal disappearance. As further evidence that something nefarious was going on, he cited an interview with retired Great Smoky Mountains Park Ranger Dwight McCarter. McCarter stated the Special Forces members were distant and uncommunicative. It was like they were keeping something from the other volunteers. Maybe they even had goals that were at odds with the larger search efforts. In addition, in Missing 411, Politis reported that the Special Forces rescuers were armed with machine guns. That made no sense. Why would they need weapons to search for a missing child? What were they expecting to find? And why wouldn't they discuss whatever was really going on? Politis suggested that there was something in those woods that the government had to keep secret. The Green Berets weren't really looking for Dennis. They were destroying incriminating evidence. He's less clear about what secret the Green Berets were trying to hide. It could have been a Cold War military operation, or it could have been Bigfoot. Politis didn't seem to have any specific theory, just that something suspicious was going on. That vagueness makes it difficult to assess. But what really dooms the theory of a government conspiracy is Politis himself. Many of the claims in his book were factually inaccurate. For example, he argued that search dogs had refused to look for the boy. This wasn't true. The official park reports said they didn't even have dogs scouring the area. They knew it would be too difficult to follow a scent after a rainstorm. Moreover, his assertion that rescuers were carrying machine guns was false. The Green Berets were either unarmed or had their standard-issue sidearms on them. But Politis still reached an audience, and his book sparked countless online conspiracy theories. Something about his arguments had struck a nerve. The disappearance of Dennis Martin was so confusing, so tragic, so frustrating, 
that people had to craft some story to make sense of a senseless event. Over the years, many have come forward with potential solutions to the case. In 1985, a ginseng hunter reported that he'd found a child-sized skeleton under a tree years before. Thirty men searched the location he referenced, but found nothing. However, by the time they carried out the sweep, the weather and animals could have had more than enough time to destroy the remains. This tip proved to just be another dead end. With no solid breaks, all we have left are guesses. And the National Park Service sticks to the likeliest story, that Dennis Martin simply got lost. Then he was alone without shelter when a vicious storm struck. It's likely that Dennis Lloyd Martin passed away from hypothermia. After all, the temperature dropped steeply that first night. In the torrential rain, the poor boy's clothes would have been soaked in frigid water. He wouldn't have been able to keep his footing in the slippery, muddy darkness. The idea of this wet, cold child dying alone in the wilderness is a horrible thought. But even more unpleasant is what became of Dennis's body. It could easily have been washed downriver or buried in the mud. We can only guess as to what wild animals might have done to it in the subsequent days. Now, 50 years later, there's too much topsoil for even the remains of his remains to be found. And nature wasn't the only factor that destroyed evidence. At its peak, the hunt for Dennis involved 1,400 people with varying levels of training, background, and experience. After they spent two weeks canvassing the area, all of the clues could easily have been trampled or destroyed. If the search had been smaller and more focused, they could have avoided sloppy mistakes. For instance, there would be less ambiguity around the child's footprints leading into the stream. Instead, the what-ifs remained for years after Dennis went missing. His father, Bill Martin, passed away in 2014. He never learned what became of his lost boy, and it's almost certain no one ever will. But this tale of tragic loss does have a silver lining. The search for Dennis Martin ended so anticlimactically, it weighed heavily on the Park Service's collective conscience. It spurred them to reevaluate how they handled missing persons cases. Back in 1969, the customary way to conduct a search was to throw volunteers into the area. They'd play the numbers game until eventually someone found something. Since the Dennis Martin case, this method is no longer considered reliable. Teams are trained to focus on looking for clues first, before searching for the missing person. The rangers describe it as working smarter rather than harder. And importantly, they know not to flood the scene with hundreds of good-hearted people who might not have the experience to pick up a trail. After half a century, Dennis Lloyd Martin is presumed dead, but his legacy is a positive one. His story has helped other lost children find their parents. Though kids still get lost in the woods, trained professionals are better at making sure they don't stay that way. And reunited families can thank Dennis and the lessons the National Park Service learned from him for their happy endings.
Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.